Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. Our speaker this morning is a native of California and a Dominican friar of the province of St. Joseph in the United States. After his ordination to the priesthood, Father Ezra Sullivan went to Rome, where he now serves as a professor of moral theology and psychology at the University of St. Thomas Aquinas, commonly known as the Angelicum. He's published scholarly articles on bioethics, theology, and Catholic history, and has written two books on the Thomistic account of habits, uh, including Heroic Habits, Discovering the Soul's Potential for Greatness. That's from Tan Books. His most recent book is from Sophia Institute Press. It's called Alter Christus, Holiness on Earth and in Eternity. Please join me in welcoming... Father Ezra Sullivan. Father Ezra, it's great to have you back at the ICC. Thanks, Annie. And let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thy intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of Virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me. St. Joseph, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The English Catholic writer Hilaire Belloc once famously said, Our European structure, built upon the noble foundation of classical antiquity, was formed through, exists by, is consonant to, and will stand only in the Catholic Church. Europe will return to the faith or she will perish. The faith is Europe and Europe is the faith. What a strong claim. A more recent historian has said, we have to position Europe's history within the broader stream of humanity. Because if Europe is Catholicism, how do we make sense of Catholicism spread throughout the world even earlier than it arrived on the shores of Europe? And that is, in a way, the question that we're asking here. In speaking about early Christianity and its development in India, it challenges these ideas of Hilaire Belloc and others who believe that Europe is the faith and the faith is Europe. So in order to understand Christianity, then in its wider extent, let's begin by returning to its origins. 
Jesus Christ. One of the 12 apostles, Thomas, was also called Didymus or the twin. He's referred to in the Gospel of John. His election to the 12 is spoken about. And eventually what happens, we find Thomas speaking up in a very important moment. Jesus, knowing that he's going to be handed over to be killed, he says to him that he must go to Jerusalem. The other disciples sought to dissuade our Lord, and they, but Thomas replies, let us go also that we may die with him. Now, after the crucifixion, Thomas apparently severed his connection with the rest of the apostles for some time, and he was not present when Christ appeared to the rest of the apostles. Of course, Judas, by that point, had already committed suicide. However, he said, Thomas, when he met up with them later, unless I see, I will not believe. For him, he had to see, he had to act, he had to feel. I want to put my hands into the print of his nails and place my finger into his side. And of course, we all know what happens is a week later, a Lord appears and Thomas puts his finger into the side of Christ. And we see then that Thomas is allowed to, as it were, continue in faith. He's not rejected by Christ. Instead, this flesh and blood, this touch and sight, he now has belief. Pope St. Gregory the Great said, by touching Christ, he was led back to the faith. And so Thomas, in a way, uh, exemplifies the physical and experiential aspect of the Christian life. And showing this belief in the resurrected Christ brings us then into how Thomas begins to spread faith to the rest of the world. Now, there's a durable tradition among Christians in India, upheld by ancient, although somewhat divergent, documentary sources, that say that after some time, 33 AD, our Lord's ascension into heaven, Thomas was sent to be a missionary. The Acts of Thomas contain the oldest extant reference to Thomas's apostolic work in India. This mysterious second or third century document presents the apostles deciding by lot the countries to which they would preach. India fell to Thomas. He's sometimes called Judas Thomas. Now, other Christian authorities affirm the same tradition, that whereas Peter went to Rome and John went to Asia, Ephesus, Paul to Greece and Rome, what we find is Thomas goes to Asia. And you see Bartholomew also entering toward Persia, and Thomas ends up in India. And so spreading out from Jerusalem is from the center of a circle. They radiate to all the parts of the known world. I'm going to tell the story of Thomas the Apostle and the development of Christianity in India from, well, frankly, a distinctly Western perspective. <laughs> That's what I am. That's all I know. And unfortunately, I can't read any of the original languages of India. So I'm working, frankly, with documents that themselves uh, have been translated. And some historians would want to give a kind of caveat from the beginning and note that some oral traditions or inscriptions on copper plates or sometimes undated palm leaves as they were written out, these are often quite difficult to establish when they were written. These often have not been properly edited or dated according to modern scientific criteria. 
And so what we're working with is oral tradition, some archaeological evidence, and then some manuscript evidence that itself is somewhat difficult to interpret at the moment. But I follow the tradition of the Thomas Christians. And so despite some sort of um, a disbelief by some historians, they say that anachronisms may be detectable in these traditions. I'm going to overlook those. Now, as I pointed out, it's said that the lot fell on Thomas to go to India. And in this old tradition, he said, I have no strength for this. I'm a Hebrew. How can I teach Indians? He went to the Medes and the Persians in what is now Iraq, but apparently did not go immediately to India. He even returned to Jerusalem, the tradition says, where Christ appeared to him. And they talked back and forth about Thomas's mission. Lord, send me wherever you will, but not to India. And Jesus replies, fear not, Thomas, I will be with you. My name will be glorified in you. You will fight the good fight and confess my name. And you will have to suffer much in order to show the Indians that I am their Lord and Savior. Oh, Lord, said Thomas, do not send your servant to India. The country is far away. It's full of hardships. The people are ignorant. <laughs> and Jesus said, God will be with you. I will be with you, Thomas. So finally, Thomas kneels before our Savior, and he says what he says in the gospel, my Lord and my God, your will be done. According to an ancient chronicle, the apostle then, he went and converted the Magi, who are mentioned in the gospel of Matthew, during his Eastern itinerary. And a similar abbreviated episode regarding the Magi appears in a Latin sermon regarding the Gospel of Matthew. And so it's quite interesting to consider that Thomas was sent to the people of the East, first the Magi, and then perhaps coming across the land bridge over Pakistan and South. We're not quite sure where Thomas went on his journey, but it's likely that as he went, he found this ancient group that the Greeks call the Gymnosophists. These men, who enacted their philosophy in a bodily manner, had been present in India centuries prior to Thomas. Alexander the Great, when he crossed the Indus River, encountered some men who, he says, had stretched themselves out or had tangled themselves up. And they enacted their philosophy by holding fixed postures. One man who was with Alexander the Great described them as sitting or lying down naked and motionless until evening when they went back to the city. And another, he said he saw one man stand on a single leg, holding a piece of wood in his hands, changing his posture when he became weary. And this lesson then is quite interesting because it sort of hints at this bodily posture that we see in India from ancient times, well before Christ, all the way up until now that the body itself was used in order to express something of their interior belief. Was that proto-yoga? Did Thomas encounter yogis? That's quite difficult to say. But what we can say is that when Thomas the Apostle was, was traveling through India, he certainly would have met this sort of physical enactment. And himself coming to faith by his physical touch of Christ must have understood this way of thinking. Remember, he's the one who said, unless I touch and believe, unless I touch and see, I will not believe. And so now he's noticing that in India, their faith is enacted 
in a more physical way than in other places. Very interesting. The document entitled Acts of Thomas, as I've mentioned, is the earliest literary account of the apostles' work in India. After uh, its older, oldest surviving versions, which are in Syriac, perhaps the place from which Thomas had come, many other languages uh, found translations, Arabic, Armenian, Coptic, Ethiopic, Greek, and Latin, all suggest that this enduring popularity of the text had a wide influence on the Eastern churches. The Acts of Thomas describe him as a wandering ascetic. They portray demons manifesting themselves as snakes, snake demons being defeated by Christian power. They offer numerous morality tales and discourses about purity and temperance. They depict the blessings Christians received by renouncing the gods of the East. They speak of Thomas's new God who brings spiritual life through the sacraments, especially holy baptism and the Eucharist. The Toma Parvam, the Song of Thomas, is a very ancient account of the apostle. It's still sung at some ceremonial occasions, especially marriages, and it describes how the way or the margam of the Son of God came to the country of Arabia when Thomas arrived, and then eventually how he converted some of the early Jews who had established themselves as merchants on the shores of India. Quite interesting that for centuries, people had denied that the Acts of Thomas had any sort of historical validity. They looked at this as simply a pious legend invented by Indian Christians in order to bolster their ancient pedigree. For instance, there's a story in which Thomas is said to have converted a king named Gundafar through a series of miracles that were apparently not uncommon in the apostle's life. He comes to the king and the king asks him, Thomas, if he can build a palace. And Thomas says that he can. And miraculously, by gathering the wood together, he builds this humongous, beautiful palace, uh, almost as it were, in just a matter of a few days. So people read this and thought, oh, this is some pious legend. But what's interesting is that not too long ago, archaeology and ancient coins have verified the existence of this king. We have little coins with the name Gundafar on it. They were found in the very place in India where Thomas is said to have been. So we shouldn't discount these uh, ancient traditions too quickly. These elements, of course, are telling us not only about the life and belief of Thomas and the early Christians, but also about their interaction with the peoples who Thomas had found who had been there for countless centuries before. And this is going to be, of course, the context of Hindu worship. According to oral and textual sources, Thomas encountered the worship of the goddess Kali, in southeast India, near modern Chennai. When promised food by Brahmanical priests who pressed him to worship at her shrine, he refused, saying, am I to sell my soul for a morsel of rice and worship the devil? But if you insist, I'll do your bidding, and, and you will see how your goddess will run away from her shrine, and the temple itself shall be destroyed by fire. And here we have a, a picture of Kali, in uh, her destructive evil. Now, as the priests of Kali attempted to push him into the temple, Thomas's prophecy was fulfilled. The structure was consumed by flames. Infuriated by his actions, the priests brought him outside of the city. And this is where tradition says he was killed by the Brahmins 
by thrusting of spears. Some of them say that, in fact, a trident was thrust through his heart. And you could see in that picture that she's carrying a trident. Of course, um, sometimes Sheba is also seen carrying a trident. Now, what's, what's fascinating about this then is that Kali and the worship of Kali still remains even now. And so we can say then that this element in, in Thomas's life has a certain uh, probability to it, that there's something very likely. In fact, we know that there was a Kali temple in Mylapore. So even granting then the truth of this Thomas tradition, um, we can notice that as, as we can imagine, that the early uh, Hindus would not have wanted to maintain this. They would have wanted to discount this man's power and influence. In any case, we can go back in time a little bit. And, um, and according to the Acts of Thomas, as mentioned, um, he went to the Malabar coast. And here we have a little map. And so this, this map shows us the, uh, the ancient trade routes. If you'll notice, on one side, he goes all the way up from the Red Sea, and we there's evidence of Indian traders who would be up in the Nile. They would travel their way down south, follow the coast, and then eventually they would make their way across the Indian Ocean and over to India. And one of the major stopping points is right there down in Kerala. And, and it's quite interesting that, that the Jews themselves have ancient traditions saying that um, even after the destruction of the temple in AD 70, that many of them established some of their colonies on the shore of Western India. And so we find then that there's going to be this, this sort of plausibility to Thomas's arrival there. When Thomas is said to have arrived there, he met um, a Jewish man and he stayed at the house of a Jewish merchant. He preached in the synagogue that Jesus was the Messiah, and he also preached in the streets to the Brahmins. He saw a young man, and he said to him, where are you coming from? The young man said, well, I'm returning from the temple where I offer the gods my morning prayers. Do you think, Thomas said, that the gods can hear your prayers? The young man replied, how can they hear me? They're just made of stone, and their appearance is horrid. Thomas asked, why does the son worship him? these gods and the boy replied well his father does so and he said if we do not worship the gods they might send us famine and plague and every imaginable evil thomas instead spoke about the love of god the creator he talked about the redemption wrought in christ's cross he blessed the boy and he instructed him and eventually baptized him later the boy was ordained a priest and he was the apostle's first disciple and in india the practice was that the nephew of the bishop would himself become the bishop. And, and so this chain of bishops and their nephews has continued. And there's an oral tradition linking these bishops and their nephews, their successors, in 50 and sometimes 70 generations, all the way back to Thomas. Thomas also, as I mentioned, went down to um, uh, Kerala. So when Thomas was in that area, in the very south part of India, which now uh, is where the Thomas Christians live, he encountered a demon. And when he was staying with his host, this demon began to torment the wife and the daughter of the man. 
Thomas entered their room and the demon began to howl. Why do you persecute us, Thomas, apostle of Jesus? You've already driven us out of another province of India. And now, now there is no other place for us where here we have been such masters. And so one historian estimates that if you look at the ancient documents and count up all the people converted, Thomas converted more than 17,000 Indians in his lifetime. And the large majority were from the highest Brahmin caste. And attributed to him as well were 260 exorcisms, 230 people delivered from leprosy, 220 from paralysis, and 250 from blindness. These traditions are kept, as mentioned, in palm leaf manuscripts or copper plate epigraphy, stone inscriptions, and many of the leading families still claim descent from these original converts. And this shows us then that when we speak of India, of course, back then there were many kingdoms. It wasn't a single country the way it's understood now. And some of the Hindu kings would fight against each other. And so it's not as if there was a single unified force that the Christians were somehow invading. There were many areas that were even uninhabited because back then the peoples hadn't grown to such large size as they have. Now, Romans sailing from the Red Sea were certainly in contact with merchants and residents in these other places of India. Inscriptions and papyri from Roman, Roman Egypt showed that Romans traveled to India and some Indian merchants likewise traveled to Roman areas. Coins of Rome certainly circulated in India. And in fact, they've even found different Roman patterns of pots and sherds in the excavations archaeologically down south. So these ceramic finds show us that there's evidence then of traders and settlers and even refugees that came from the west to the shores of India. Sometimes they came in groups, sometimes they came individually, and this happens over a number of centuries. And it's not just people from the Arabian Peninsula, but people from all over the Roman territories of the East. We find Greeks and Arabs, Jews and Syrians, Armenians and Persians, and they all come one after another to settle along the area of India, which was rich in gold. And the early Christian community actually is said to have had almost a monopoly on the um, trade of pepper. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. It's, it's quite interesting that um, they were able to develop this early commerce and benefit the rest of the world through the development of this, um, this trade and agriculture. Now, in the year 345, there's a community of East Syrian or Babylonian Jewish Christians who landed on the Malabar coast. This community consisted of about 72 royal families, about 400 people, and they claimed to be able to trace their lineage all the way back to King David. They had been exiled from Israel in the destruction of Israel by the Babylonians, sent up to Babylon hundreds of years prior to Christ. They lived in Babylon all that time, and eventually they made their way down to India. And so it's said then that there was another man uh, also named Thomas, along with the bishop and these Christians, that they were cordially welcomed by the emperor of Kerala at the time. 
And this new community received special grants. And we actually have some of these legal documents showing that these Christians were given privileges. They're formally certified and engraved in copper plates, telling us exactly what tracts of land that they were given to enjoy. The privileges given to these early Christian immigrants included uh, wearing golden flowers in their hair during weddings, having certain kinds of musical instruments that only royalty could use, riding on elephants, sitting upon carpets, having a certain kind of a pavilion or uh, you know, like a draped umbrella over them, and even allowing women to, <laughs> one document says, whistle with their fingers as only the royal women could do. <laughs> now, these privileges show that they were recognized by the emperor of Kerala as royalty. And so it's fascinating to think then that many of the uh, Thomas Christians have both an Indian and a Jewish heritage going back all of these centuries. In 325, the Council of Nicaea, and in 381, the Council of Constantinople assigned the ancient church of Antioch, north of Jerusalem, authority over Syria, Palestine, Persia, and India. And this cemented the connection between the Syrian churches, the Arabian churches of Christianity, which existed until some of them were destroyed um, by Islam. There's still some that remain, but it cemented that sort of relationship and the Christians in India. And so vast majority of early Christian influence there came from these churches attached to Antioch. And of course, Antioch, if you remember, according to the Acts of the Apostles, is where people were first called Christian. In AD 535, we have a little more evidence. There was an Indian Christian traveling from Alexandria in Egypt, and he visited the west coast of India. He wrote a book called Christian Topography. And there, he describes Syrian Christian bishops and communities that he found along the coasts of India and the island of Sri Lanka. By then, there were wars between the Sassanid and the Eastern Roman emperors of Byzantium. And what this did was it brought more and more waves of refugees to India. See, refugees can go any direction. Moreover, political pressures within Persia prompted a severance of bonds between the East and the West of, Christ, of the Christian empire. And so the patriarch of Babylon, or Chaldea, and we still have a Chaldean Catholic church, they claimed authority over those Malabar Christians, which is why the oldest example of the Acts of Thomas is in Syria. So eventually Muslim expansion in the 600s cut off the East churches from the entire West. And then what we find then is that the development of the, the Western Roman Catholic Church is almost entirely distinct from the development of the churches on the Eastern side. And, and this becomes an unfortunate break in their mutual histories, that they sort of have a parallel development, but very little uh, intercommunication. What I'll do is I'll describe some of those bridges of communication that came about and that we have evidence of um, in, in some interesting manuscripts. So we have, for instance, uh, St. Gregory of Tours, and um, you know, Saint, we actually have, uh, we have the Feast of St. Gregory in the West. Um, he was in Gaul, which is you know, sort, of, sort of what is now France. And what's quite interesting is he claims that he had a friend 
who visited Thomas's relics. But he says that they were up in Edessa, which is near Iraq. He says, nevertheless, a spot in India had held the body of Thomas. His friend, having visited it, told him about the monastery and described that site. And it was also said back then that there was a flame that was that would never go out that existed at Thomas's tomb in India. Now, we don't know what happened to that flame, and we don't know why Thomas's relics were said to have gone north. Maybe they went up there in order to you know, spare uh, the relics from the incursions of some of the non-Catholic kings down in uh, that area of India. So it's, it's, it's unclear exactly what happened. Eventually, though, everyone agreed that the, um, the relics of Thomas did go south, and that's where they remain. We also have another instance of King Alfred the Great in England, who sent pilgrims in the year 883 to go to India and to give money to the sites of the Apostle Bartholomew in Arabia, and then also down to the Shrine of Thomas. So it's quite, quite fascinating to think how far people would have had to gone from England all the way to India. And of course, we know that this is the you know, this is the first instance of the English going to India that's been recorded. And then, of course, after that, once the Anglicans um, and the English Empire established their rule, then you know lots of English were there. And it's it's quite fascinating though to to realize that the first bridge was one of devotion. Meanwhile, to the west of India, the gap generally increases because of Islam, as mentioned. So. After um, the year 825 or so, we start to notice that a lot of northern India is ruled by the, um, the, the Muslim rulers. And, of course, they're the ones who eventually build um, the Taj Mahal. And Muslim rule never fully established itself completely down in southern India the way it had in northern India. But there were Muslims there. And... Um, and, and they, they did try to prevent Christians from spreading. So one of the questions people often wonder is, why did Christianity spread so widely in Italy and then in France and eventually in Germany, but it didn't spread all throughout the subcontinent of India? And, and there are a couple of answers to that. One is that Constantine converted, as we know, and because he was the emperor of all these lands, that basically Christianity was able to spread wherever the Roman Empire had established itself. Because India was outside of the Roman Empire, it wasn't influenced by those opportunities afforded by the conversion of Constantine. The other answer is, as mentioned, even when the Byzantine emperor, you know, a little bit further north up there in Turkey, now Constantinople, um, you know, Istanbul, even when he was emperor, his, his rule never extended down to the Indian subcontinent. So once again, you know, the Christian empire was unable to influence the spread of Christianity down there. And then finally, we have this element of the uh, incursion of Islam, which did successfully conquer part of India, not the whole thing, but that at least prevented Christianity from having its full missionary expanse. So there are a lot of reasons then why, unfortunately, Christianity was unable to um, uh, conquer the whole Indian subcontinent. We have to wait for that. Maybe God will send some glorious saints and martyrs, and we'll see. But in the meanwhile, what we notice, though, is that this, this Christian area down in Kerala was quite strong. That they had, um, they eventually started to distinguish themselves 
from a slightly different group, also within India, and this is before the coming of the Europeans. And so the Jewish Christians, the ones who could um, uh, identify themselves, you know, going all the way back to King David, they called themselves the Subists, with their claims to royal descent and this higher caste. They distinguished themselves from the Northern Christians, who themselves said that they went all the way back to Thomas the Apostle. In any case, you know, aside from these sort of conflicts, which unfortunately started to arise between the Christian groups, um, we can say that there was um, a lot of Christian hegemony in that area. The Southists, these, if they weren't the Thomas Christians, they nevertheless shared a common space, and they often uh, acted in some ways exteriorly similar to the Hindu high caste people around them. So, for instance, these, you know, these ones who converted from Judaism to Christianity and, and remained there, they would have uh, some of the men, they would have like a tuft of hair similar to some of the Hindus. Um, they would have rituals for removing um, a ritual pollution. They would use ghee, which we're familiar with. If you, you know, know some of the Hindu rites now, they would even um, uh, have strict rules about who they could dine with. They would avoid dining with people of lower castes. They would avoid intermarriage with different castes. And they would not touch dead bodies, as they called that ritually impure. So, it, so it's quite interesting then to, to think that these Christians, um, although you know, like fully Christianized and believing in Jesus as the Messiah, nevertheless adopted some of these exterior forms of their uh, Hindu neighbors, or you can say maybe they, maybe they kept them. Now, according to one tradition, um, around 510, there was a great church that was built that was um, a, a kingdom that lasted from about 500 AD until the coming of the Portuguese in 1498. And this is around the area of Cochin. And, and so it's interesting then that, um, according to historians, that the Thomas Christians have never been completely subdued simply by force, that they've remained there, they've contained their uh, community for all these centuries. Okay, now when we get to the Middle Ages, um, there are a couple of interesting figures who come along. Um, one is a Franciscan missionary who is en route to go to Beijing. Hmm. 1293, did you know that the Franciscans ended up in China in the 1200s? So the Dominicans. Um, I think we have a picture of um, what these guys look like. Oh, hey, look, <laughs> does that look familiar? <laughs> So um, I, I couldn't find any pictures of the Franciscan missionaries in India or China, but that just kind of reminds us of these fellows. Okay, so this fellow, John of Monte Corvino, ended up in Beijing. His, he was so successful in uh, converting some of the Chinese, he was established by the Pope as China's first Catholic archbishop, 1307. After reaching China, he wrote a letter saying, I remain in the country of India. After visiting China, where stands the Church of St. Thomas the Apostle? I was there for 13 months, and I baptized about 100 persons. And then he says, the companion of my journey was a friar of the Order of Preachers who died and was buried in the church. There's a Dominican buried at the shrine of St. Thomas there. Well, later on, in about 1320 or so, another Dominican goes along. 
and he too was accompanying some Franciscan missionaries. The Franciscan was Thomas of Tolentino. He was going to China. Friar Jordanus or Jordan Catalani, he stayed in India. There were four of his companions who um, they were martyred by Muslims in, up in the north. But Jordanus, he went south and started preaching the gospel. To his fellow Dominicans north in Persia, he wrote a couple of letters that we still have. So one is dated 1321, and he describes the progress of his mission. And he urges the Pope to establish a Christian fleet of ships and to send them to India so they can convert more people. 1300s. Jordan, he stayed there in um, what's now called uh, Quilon, and he established this as sort of the center of some of his preaching. He went back to Europe at least one time. He passed through Persia, and he, he eventually uh, was then nominated by Pope John XXII as the bishop in this area of uh, Quilon down in India. He returns to India, lives as bishop for a little while. He also visits Pakistan, Afghanistan, Sri Lanka, and, um, and he writes a, a little document of all of his travels. Here's what he says about how Christianity had sort of started to decline in some of these areas. He says that for, for want of missionaries, he says, there are people here who call themselves Christians, but they do not even have baptism. He says, instead, they believe that St. Thomas is the Christ. <laughs> he says, in this, in this part of India, I baptized many, about 300 um, some of whom were idolaters and others were Muslims. Uh, Jordan also describes the Muslims. He says, in this part of, of India, there are many people who worship idols, although a great share of them are in the hands of the Turks. And he says that the Turks came and destroyed an infinity of temples and likewise many churches, which they made into mosques uh, for Muhammad, and they took possession of Christian property. It's a grief to hear. Eventually, he too was martyred by the Muslims in 1336. And the, um, the diocese of Quilon now still traces its origins back to him. And for a couple of centuries, it sort of disappeared. There wasn't a bishop. And then with the arrival of the Portuguese, it um, was reestablished. So what's fascinating then is that we have a few of these European travelers every couple of centuries ending up in India, helping to strengthen the church. And they're helping us to sort of give a, get a glimpse of what Westerners were seeing when they arrived. There was another friar, another Dominican, who said he's the one who told us about the pepper that was being produced down in Kerala. And he said that the, um, the Christians there were able then to use the funds that they had from selling pepper to merchants who would then bring it to the rest of the world and they used it in order to um, decorate their churches and to buy flowers and to uh, have festivals. There was um, a, uh, an Italian from Venice who he was, he was actually a layman and he traveled. He had a number of different travels all around the world. He lived in Damascus for a little bit of time. He learned Arabic. He went to Ethiopia and Egypt, and then he lost the faith. He married a woman, and then he became a Muslim for a little while. He apostatized, 
And he said that he did so not so much because he feared death, but because he knew his wife would be threatened with death and his children. But eventually he, he made his way back to Rome. He threw himself at the feet of Pope Eugenius IV and asked to be reconciled to the church. Now, here's the penance that the Pope gave this man who had traveled to India. He said, I want you to recount your travels to this writer, and the writer will include them in his book. And so this, this uh, Italian who you know, had been to India, he recounted what he had seen. And he noted that um, it's very interesting that in Calcutta, or what was known as Calcutta, he says that there was uh, women who took several husbands. And he says that w- children are allotted to the husband at the will of the wife. And the inheritance of the father does not descend to the children, but to the grandchildren or the nephews. It's very interesting that um, other, other historians have affirmed that polyandry actually has existed from very ancient times in India. In fact, if, you, um, if you're familiar with, with the ancient epic, the Mahabharata, it's said that there was one wife for all five of the Pandava brothers. And there still exists polyandry in some small areas now. Um, it was mostly um, weaned off by the British during their rule. But it's quite interesting then that there's evidence of uh, polyandry in India all the way back in the 1400s. Now, the major event that happened that changed Christianity in India forever was the arrival of the Portuguese. And, and this is going to help us to sort of conclude our story there. What we see in this map is the voyage of Vasco da Gama going from Lisbon all the way around Africa, around the Cape of Good Hope, which is notorious for windy and difficult weather and uh, different movements of the water that are hard to navigate. But he made his way eventually past Madagascar and then all the way there to the south of India. And this is because in, um, in 1418, Pope Martin V had written an encyclical calling upon all the faithful to bend their energies to exterminate unbelief and to spread the faith. And so the Portuguese then took this to heart. And in 1442, the King of Portugal, he gave to the fellow now known as Henry the Navigator, he gave him the ability and the royal power to make conquests and discoveries. Eventually, the entire world was split between the Spaniards and the Portuguese. You're probably familiar with this. Uh, This is why um, when they drew the line of where the Portuguese would have dominion and where the Spaniards would have dominion, eventually the line was drawn so Brazil was included in the Portuguese dominions and everywhere east of Brazil. So that would include Africa and India. And then from South America, everything west of Brazil, so that's why all the countries on the other side of South America all the way to the Philippines would be under Spain. And this is why you know, the Philippines um, have that Spanish influence. So with the world divided then, the Portuguese had, um, had the, the, the power, not only you know, the royal power, but they actually had the Pope's blessing to go and to bring the gospel to places such as Africa and India. And they spent more time in India than they had in Africa. Later papal bulls, 1455, 1456, 1481, they give even more specification and definition to this Portuguese rule over newly discovered countries. 
the king of Portugal would present to the Holy See the prelates destined to be the bishops of all these dioceses. And then the king then would present to the bishops not only the heads of the cathedrals, but even the parish priests. And the, and the king did so because it was out of his own money that he paid the bishops and the heads of the cathedrals and the parish priests, ensuring that they had some kind of income so they could survive in these missionary areas. So the, the, the power of the crown of the king of Portugal, which is such a small country, <laughs> relatively speaking to the rest of the world, to, to then bring these ships and these, these Portuguese, um, both merchants and missionaries, to the world, is, it, it, it's, it's astonishing. And it's hardly believable that they had such influence from such a small area. In any case, Vasco da Gama's small fleet, they arrive in Malabar in 1498. So just a few years after Columbus arrived um, in uh, what is now like the Dominican Republic. The fleet of Vasco da Gama was accompanied by two priests. And basically every single fleet of the Portuguese would carry some missionaries. And they would also have some people who were more or less called vicars. So the vicars would be the head of chapels who were in, say, the Portuguese fort, and there would be like a little church that was built. The missionaries were the fellows who lived outside of the fort, and they would go and try to convert the local peoples. By within a year of arriving in India, the king of Portugal asked the pope to send more missionaries and a bishop to India. They determined they wanted to make this a permanent foundation of Christianity. The next fleet arrived in Calcutta in 1500. Instead of just a couple of ships, it now has 13, and there's a 1,000 men who are there. 1503, the Portuguese reached out to the Patriarch of Babylon, and they established a harmonious relationship, which lasted more or less for about um, 50 years. And so what this did was that sort of convinced er early on some of the Thomas Christians that these, that these other Christians were indeed legitimate that they did have the true faith, and it helped the, the Latin Catholics to believe that these, you know, Thomas Christians were legitimate and that they had, you know, the authentic faith, despite some ceremonial differences and some, some, you know, despite some differences in music and so on, they, they recognized they worshiped the same God, they had the same gospel, and in fact, they had the same liturgy, although it had been um, developed differently over the centuries. Meanwhile, explorers, Friars, merchants, soldiers increasingly traveled along those shorelines, and they started to penetrate into the interior of the country. And they gave us more and more data about the Christians of India. And unfortunately, some arguments started to heat up. Some apostolic missionaries were sent by the Pope in the name of the King of Portugal with Episcopal orders, and they said that they were to call and destroy those temples. Here's one bishop, and he wrote a letter. He said this, it would be a service of God to destroy the idolatrous temples, not only on Goa, but throughout the country. Anyone who wishes to live on Goa should become Christian. And in this way, they may retain lands and houses if they have. But if they are unwilling to convert, let them leave Goa. And it may be that some people will not become good Christians, but their children will be. And so God may be served. And unfortunately, though, a lot of um, priests and religious, they went to India as a way to kind of escape their home country. 
And this meant that there were a lot of ne'er-do-wells, scoundrels, and corrupt and lazy clergy. And this, of course, is going to be a bad example to the Thomas Christians and to the rest of even pious Hindus. And this meant that in time, the corruption of the Portuguese soldiers, many of whom were out looking for gold, many of them who took concubines of like the local Indian women, they didn't marry, they didn't practice the faith. There was just this general level where it became more and more mercenary and corrupt. There was eventually a diocese that was established by the Pope. And first the diocese was attached to um, another area, and then it became its, it, its own jurisdiction. The Franciscans came. And in, the, in, the, uh, 15, in 1517, the Franciscans had claimed that they had converted about 800 non-Christians, and they would have done so many more times had the secular clergy not been so corrupt. <laughs> There's a Franciscan vicar who says that had the governor not forbidden the baptism of the slaves of Hindu or Muslim owners, that they could have converted even more people there. So what's interesting is that Hindus and Muslims both kept the slaves. The Portuguese felt that they were unable to stop slavery at that time, but they did want to convert to the slaves, and the governor said not to. He was worried that there would be a revolt of the slaves if they became Christian, and this revolt of the slaves would then lead to a war between Muslims, Hindus, and Christians, and the Portuguese couldn't sustain it. They weren't locals, and the Thomas Christians tried to stay out of the fight. And so this is another reason why the Indian subcontinent was never fully evangelized. And so unfortunately, though, although some Portuguese wanted to convert the locals, others, as as we've said, uh, became uh, more and more interested in the economic opportunities (laughs) offered by being in India. And, um, and And what's interesting then is this is going to lead to the coming of the Jesuits. In 1542, St. Francis Xavier arrives in Goa after having visited other Eastern countries, and there they establish the Society of Jesus. And what disturbed him most was the profound ignorance of the Indian wives of the Portuguese sailors. They had children, and they hardly even were concerned for the conversion of the wives and the education of the children. And so Francis Xavier resolved to set this right, and he devised a method that ended up being extremely successful. Of course, he did not speak Tamil, so he took uh, a few Tamil-speaking translators with him, and he walked from village to village, and he would baptize children, and then he would make them memorize by rote the Lord's Prayer, the Hail Mary, the Creed, and the Commandments. And in fact, he set music to these things, and apparently he was such like a creative composer that sailors later on would say that they could hear the Christians singing these tunes created by Francis Xavier as they worked. These doctrines were recited aloud every morning and every evening at the sound of a bell. And then he had a catechist who would keep track of all the births, the deaths, the burials, and the marriages, as well as the lineages of the Christians, and he helped them to revive their memory of to whom they were related. And so what this did was it helped to both crystallize these families. He drew away a man from his mistress and either had him marry the mistress or leave her behind. And this then allowed these families to become more solid and complete and to attach themselves to the faith more fully. He's said to have baptized about 10,000 people in just one area. And eventually, um, 
this uh, this one area down what then was called the Fisher Coast, now called uh, Paravar, because of the success of St. Francis Xavier, they retained their faith for more than four and a half centuries. So he was quite successful. Meanwhile, the relations with the Thomas Christians after Francis Xavier died, um, these relations started to deteriorate. The Western clerics, they wanted to, as it were, use the uh, ability of the Portuguese and the so-called right of the Portuguese to subjugate the land of India. They also wanted to subjugate the Thomas Christians. The Thomas Christians, meanwhile, were dismayed because they see these men eating beef, which is forbidden in um, you know, uh, Hindu countries. They see them drinking alcohol, getting drunk, their uncouth manners. They're shocked and dismayed. And so what happens is there's a mutual misunderstanding between these Western colonists and then the Thomas Christians. And unfortunately, the, the, the Westerners, they try to use papal authority to argue that that Westerners should have jurisdiction even over the Thomas Christians. And of course, <laughs> I mean, papal, the papal authority had nothing to do with Thomas Christians for over a thousand years. So how could that be a, a legitimate sort of claim about universal jurisdiction? It's, I mean, it's a very interesting question now, but the point is that back then in the late 1500s, um, the Archbishop of Goa, he tried to establish um, a uh, what they called the Council of Diemper. This is 1599. And because of this council afterwards, the Roman Catholic authorities destroyed many manuscripts and texts of the Thomas Christians. They said that they contained erroneous things. There were some uh, elements in the theology of some of the Thomas Christians that were problematic. Many of the Thomas Christians refused to call Mary the mother of God. And one of the reasons why is because the Council of Ephesus had not made its way fully down to that area of India. And so they called Mary only the mother of Christ. This, of course, was what Nestorius claimed because he didn't fully recognize that Christ being fully man and fully God, he would also be you know, Mary's son. And so Mary could say that, well, she is the mother of God, not simply the mother of the humanity of Christ. She's the mother of the whole Christ, which is also God. So Nestorius denied this. And even what counts as Nestorianism and whether or not it's truly a heresy or a misunderstanding based on translations of different words for son of God and so on, we can put that aside. But the point is that the Roman Catholics thought that the Thomas Christians were, if not heretical, they were suspect. So they destroy tons of manuscripts. They destroy tons of artwork. And these things, of course, are entirely lost. And so reconstructing a history of the early Indian church now is much more difficult than it could have been back then. Following this so-called council or synod, talk about practicing synodality, the Archbishop of Goa then established a Jesuit missionary as um, another bishop over the St. Thomas Christians. So he places a Westerner over these local Christians. And this Jesuit then, um, he, he, was, he tried to encourage a Latinization of the Thomas Christians by changing their ancient liturgy to be more in line with the modernity of the day. Very interesting. Now, the St. Thomas Christians, of course, that um, they, would, they would accept the, the Pope recognizing him as the successor to St. Peter. They accepted the, the faith that the Catholics proclaimed, but part of them wanted to maintain this Western Syriac rite. 
And so over time, more resentment comes along. We've already seen how some of the Thomas Christians had some tensions with the other early Christians, those related to the Jews. And so now we have these split churches, and this becomes the source eventually of the split rites, which now exist down in uh, that area in Kerala. And unfortunately, there, there has not been a union of the various rites. And, but perhaps we can also say, if, if it's not unfortunate, that this has allowed their local tradition to be maintained, to be preserved, and then to flourish in their own way. So we just have a couple of slides then showing us um, a little bit about, um, we'll just skip ahead, Annie, to the slides of the, the Shrine of St. Thomas. And, um, and, and that's just one instance of the, it's, it's a slightly Western architecture, but it's also influenced by some Indian, uh, you know, local Indian architectural ideas. And this is just one of many beautiful structures that exists in India that you can go and see. And, um, and I'll conclude with this cross, which is one of a few that, have, that has been said to been established by St. Thomas himself. And certainly, if it's not that one that St. Thomas established, it's in the style that he gave. And what we see then is that through, through the centuries, the faith that Thomas brought, the faith in Jesus Christ as the one true God, that this has been maintained through Syriac, through Tamil, through English, through many different languages, through many different cultures and lands, that this one true faith is now still kept in India by the local Christians. And they're proud of their heritage, and they've maintained their faithful theological and liturgical tradition. And what we hope as Westerners is to be able to uh, read more of their materials and to learn it um, and to, so it's accessible to people who uh, don't speak their languages. So we can now enrich our church as well. So that's the story of the establishment of Christianity in India. And, um, and I apologize as not being an expert, I'm sure there's a lot that I've missed, and I look forward to hearing more questions to help me understand uh, what there is to learn. Thank you. Father, thank you so much. This was just absolutely fascinating, and uh, really appreciate what you were able to, uh, to find and, and relay to us uh, today. Um, so thank you. Thank you so much. Father, are you ready for some questions? All right. All right. So um, first off, there's been some questions about um, documentation. Like what kind of you you mentioned that a lot of things got burned uh, just a few minutes ago. But but what kind of primary sources are available to um, to get a sense of of what was going on with the Thomas Christians at the time? Yeah. So um, so I mentioned some of the uh, archaeological finds where, you know, there's Roman pottery that's been found, the coins that affirm the existence of this King Gundapar. We also have copper plates where, um, you know, because copper is, is lasting, they would actually hammer out very carefully some documents there. And some of those copper plates include the uh, information regarding what land people owned or exchange of goods. And so we know, you know, where, where do they live? Um, we also have uh, some manuscripts, as I mentioned, that were written on palm leaves. So palm leaves were, it was sort of like papyrus, you know, so papyrus is a different plant, but 
the palm leaves were sort of pounded out and then they would turn into a bit of a, a they would weave them together with a bit of a paste and so it would turn into a kind of paper-like substance so as you can imagine in weather where it's extremely wet and you have monsoons every year these things deteriorate very quickly so we have some of those um, there's also oral tradition and oral tradition should not be discounted um, it's tricky to know how accurate some oral tradition is, but but generally speaking, uh, the families who have kept this this oral tradition of their their own family lineage that those are probably like the the highest probability of being accurate. Whereas oral traditions regarding like oh Thomas was buried here or he was buried there, well there are conflicting stories about that, and so those are much more difficult to unentangle. Um, what's the accuracy? Now we know with saints in general that they've been moved from place to place from time to time. So you know, right now, the body of St. Nicholas, he's down in Italy, in Bari, but he's not from Bari, right? So St. Nicholas was actually from modern-day Turkey, but for lots of complicated reasons, his body ended up being transferred there. And so to say that St. Thomas could have been up in Edessa and then moved back to India is entirely possible. It's, it's quite a complicated story as to um, how to know when people were making a fanciful tale and when were they accurately reporting something or reporting it as well as they could. Maybe they didn't know the whole story. So just like, you know, fake news now, well, we had fake news back then too. And it doesn't mean all news is false, but it just means we have to have a discerning eye as to what's accurate or not. Well put. Uh, Mara here on screen, go ahead, take yourself off the mute and you can ask your question to father. Father, thank you so much for the lecture. I have a question. So, so they went to Kerala, and then you know they went to Malabar. So, but do you have an idea how it happened that it came to be the Zero Malabar rite? Do you know how it came to be? Which order? How it happened? Right. So it, it's called Zero because of the connection to Syria and the ancient church there. As I mentioned, it's probably those bishops who came down with the converts, you know, the Jewish converts who came down. So that's why it's called Zero. And then Malabar would be the one of the primary locations where they ended up, and this would be where the first bishop ended up having his cathedral. But of course, we also have the Syro-Malankar church. And then, and to make it even more complicated, there's what's called the Jacobite Syrian church. And the Jacobites were essentially those who, who broke off from the other Christians because they refused to, um, to be westernized whatsoever. So, so there, there are actually something like um, five or six non-Latin Catholic uh, Christian churches down there. Thank you, Father. I didn't know about the Jacobites. I didn't know the relationship. Uh, Andrew here on screen. Go ahead and ask your question to Father. Hi, Father. Um, thank you for this beautiful uh, webinar. Um, there's two small questions, if I may. The the holy relics of St. Thomas, it is said to be in India, and then I've experienced the sea in Ortona, Italy, uh, when I visited that the relics or most of the relics were in Ortona, Italy. Is it both or is it which one would it be that holds the relics? And second, there's a book uh, that supposedly uh, that St. Thomas wrote, and uh, the St. Catherine's Monastery in Sinai actually holds uh, holds the actual copy. Is there a digitalized version of it? Okay. Um, the, the answer to the second question is, I don't know. 
<laughs> so, oh, so that was easy. Yeah, I, I just have no idea if there's a digitalized copy. Um, but the answer to the first question is, it's my understanding that in the Middle Ages, the 1250s or so, some relics were brought down to uh, Ortona. And, um, and this, again, is not an uncommon thing. So like the example of St. Nicholas, we know that Pope Francis, for instance, recently gave some of the relics of St. Nicholas to uh, the Orthodox, who then brought them back to you know, their countries. I think it was Russian Orthodox, in fact. Interesting. Um, and, uh, and, and, but, but the majority of St. Nicholas's relics still remain in Bari. And so I think likewise, when there was this contingent who, um, remember I said that there were, we have some medieval friars going to India, it seems that they may have received um, as a gift because they were, they were seen as the representatives of the Pope. So it could be that they received some of the relics of St. Thomas, and then they end up bringing those down to um, Ortona, which is you know in, in Abruzzo, so that's sort of like the, the east side of Italy. And, and so, I mean, I don't know the whole story there, but you can imagine a ship arriving in that area, and then this is where the relics are. So let's, you know, put them in a church um, closest to where the, the ship landed. Father, Teresa asked, could you just explain again why the arrival of Vasco da Gama was so significant in the development of Christianity in Italy? You mean in, in uh, India? Uh, India. I didn't mean to say Italy. Yes. Yeah. India. Yeah. I mean, essentially what you have is you have two groups of Christians in India who are, who had been there from time immemorial. And then the Portuguese come and they start to establish Latin or Roman Catholic Christianity. So, um, so now, now the Latin church is establishing itself. It's an entirely different tradition, entirely different liturgy, different language. Most of the Portuguese for, for a long time, didn't even bother to learn the local languages. In fact, this is just a little footnote. The Portuguese at first even tried to pass a law saying that the locals, that they had to that they had destroy any dictionaries that they had of their own language and learn Portuguese because Portuguese king is the king. So like you have to learn our language. Of course, that was totally unsuccessful, but, um, but, but it shows a little bit of the mentality back then, which was, they thought that they had the right to rule, and therefore their liturgy should be dominant, their language should be dominant, their culture, and and everybody else should, should just be subordinate to that. Um, just as a follow-up real quick, because there was a question that came in about how St. Thomas was able to communicate in the first place. Do we have any indication as to how they were able to, did they learn the languages there? Did they Did they figure out other ways to communicate? Yeah, good question. So in, in the Acts of Thomas, um, one of the things it says is when he first arrived, he, he was actually something like a servant or a slave of an Indian merchant. And when he arrives in India, there was a Jewish uh, girl who was also a slave and she played the flute and, um, and that he learned some of the language from her. And then after that, now, I don't know how many languages he learned. I don't even know which languages exactly were being spoken in that particular area. But but it does seem that Thomas was able to communicate at least with a lot of them in their native tongue. And um, and so this this would have greatly helped him as opposed to like Francis Xavier, you know, centuries later, who he only learned a little bit. But Francis Xavier is moving so much throughout the world that he couldn't, you know, learn Chinese and Japanese and all the Indian languages 
And oh, by the way, he was in Africa for a little while. I mean, it's just astonishing. So he wasn't, you know, a polyglot that way. It's impressive to hear you say something nice about a Jesuit. Nicely done. He's a saint. (laughs) (laughs) Harold here on screen. Go ahead with your question. Yeah, Father, I have two questions. Um, By the way, it was very enlightening um, a lecture because my family is from India, um, but not St. Thomas Christians, but um, from Calcutta, so from the uh, Portuguese um, influence. But um, my question is regarding the um, Christians in the North. Uh, Do they still exist? And also... um, the other question is about the um, the Orthodox. Like so, like Saint Thomas Christians. Like for the most part, do they see themselves as under the, uh, you know, um, in union with the Pope, or how did that that work? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Good. Good. Good questions. So, so the first answer is um, the uh, yes. There, there, there are still many, many Christians in uh, Goa, especially. And in fact, there's a cardinal there. Um, so, you know, an Indian who is cardinal. And um, and so the, the largest population of those within communion within the Catholic Church in India are now Roman Catholics. So they belong to the Latin Catholic Church. Um, the, the Orthodox, there's probably, there's more than uh, 3 million Orthodox. So to give you an idea, there's like about 11 million Roman Catholics in India, there's about 3 million uh, Orthodox of the different rites. And then uh, those who are in the communion with the Catholic Church, but they have their own separate rite, the Syro Malabar, about 4 million of those. We have Syro Malankar, they're much smaller. So, so yes, yes, they all exist. All these different groups still exist. And, um, and they, they unfortunately uh, sometimes still disagree with each other about various things and, um, and and even, you know, about, for instance, like, should they face East when they celebrate Holy Mass? Should they, you know, face like the crucifix or should they face the people? So there's still these sort of liturgical disagreements based on their own traditions. And, um, and so, so they're, they're there and um, they're flourishing. And, um, and so the families that trace themselves back to these different groups still often have those, you know, familial connections. And sometimes it's manifested in the language they speak or different food and so on. That brings up a question that um, was was sent in. I can't find it here in my list um, to say who it was, but was talking about, um, you know, sort of the 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 lack of communication between the East and the West and how that affected the development of, of Christianity. And you were mentioning about the sort of the Nestorian influence, I guess you could say, um, and maybe developing independently of, of Nestorius. But um, how do you go about sort of correcting a, a heresy or a misunderstanding that, that seemed to develop organically in, um, in a, a particular place? Yeah, so so this this is going to be a, a challenge um, where it, essentially what we have in the Latin Church because we have the Pope and the Pope has cardinals and we have dicasteries and all of these different bureaucratic offices and there's been very careful documentation for two thousand years that 
the the Roman Catholic Church has such a developed sense of what is orthodox and what's not orthodox. What can you say? What can't you say? What are the laws that govern us? That, that all of this is quite be- bewildering to many other Christian groups. And I mean, e- even if just just thinking about, for instance, Eastern Orthodox, you know, I, I have uh, friends who are Orthodox and they just think that the, the Western church has like way too many laws. They think that there's way too many documents coming out of Rome. Their bishops don't do half as much as, you know, the Pope does. They're like, what is going on? So so it's it's very strange to them. It seems excessive. And they don't know what to make of it. And they, and they wonder, like, do we have to accept everything? Or are there things that are, like, less authoritative? Or are there just, like, opinions of the Pope and so on? Now, when, um, when we're talking about uniting sort of that Latin com- complexity along with sort of colonial ambition, then that's where we really get a clash of both culture and church. And, and I think this is one of the difficulties is, some of these things could have been established and I think accepted by the Thomas Christians more easily had the Portuguese been more patient, had they established, you know, like authentic dialogue and tried to understand the language, the cultures and the customs of the Thomas Christians. But instead, it's sort of just the sort of top down attempts to fit them into a paradigm, even if the paradigm was perfectly fine and orthodox, you can't have somebody go from um, one place to another immediately. It just doesn't work that way. That I mean, we all know it's like asking, um, you know, somebody who, who you know, if, if you've lived in one part of a country to like move to another part, like there's all sorts of new customs and so on, which aren't bad in themselves, but it takes a while for you to get used to that. And so likewise, to learn the language, as it were, of Latin Catholicism itself takes some time. But likewise, the Latin church needs to learn the language of the Eastern churches. So, um, so, so I think that this is partly what's been stymieing the the unification of East and West even now is the Latin church is like, you just need to get on board. And the, and the Orthodox are saying, wait a second, we're not sure about all of this stuff. Like, do we really have to believe that? Like, really? And um, and so then so then there, there are questions about both jurisdiction, but also culture. Cool. And we'll uh, we'll get out of here with a question from Amy here on screen. Amy, go ahead. Take yourself off the mute. Okay, you had mentioned, somebody asked about the communication with um, people from India, and you mentioned that um, St. Thomas was a slave. Can you expand on that? Right. So so according to the Acts of Thomas, when he was, um, after our Lord, you know, finally convinced him (laughs) to go to India, that the way way it went about is soon after that, there was a, a merchant, an Indian merchant, either in Jerusalem or in that area, like northern Egypt, somewhere along that peninsula, that um, that captured Thomas, and that's what eventually brought him to the shores. So that's that's one tradition. Another tradition says that Thomas, because he converted the Magi, that he actually walked over, you know, via Persia, what you know, Iraq, and then some of that area, Chaldea, and then he went down from northern India down to the south. And it could be that he did both, and that there was a point where he went up. And didn't quite cross the um, the Indus River, and so he was in northern India. But then he went back to Jerusalem. So it's it's a little complicated to know which part of the story is is in which chronological order. But certainly, like once he arrived on the shores in northern uh, in southern India, then he was there for good, and that's where he stayed until he died. And so that that would have been the enslavement uh, moment. 
Well, Father, this has been just a wonderful time together learning about the St. Thomas Christians. Thank you so much for all of the research you did and uh, and for this wonderful lecture and uh, Q&A session. Would you mind closing us in prayer? Absolutely. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.